Good afternoon. Wednesday afternoon. Brett McGarry with Greg Mackling. How are you, Greg? Did it used to be Weedless Wednesday once upon a time? <laughs> sure. What Wasn't that part of a Canadian cancer thing to help you quit smoking was to don't smoke on Wednesday, Weedless Wednesday? Oh, that sounds familiar, but I am not entirely sure. Uh if what I guess if it helped people quit smoking, great. A- anything to encourage? How are you doing, by the way? How many days you got? Uh, today is day one eighty six. That's fantastic, man. <laughs> that just puts a smile on my face. It really makes me proud of you, man. I'm Very a, well done. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it was a, it was a hard road. It took me a year finally to figure it out, but I got it. So. Anybody else trying to quit and you're having a hard time, just keep on trying. That's all I really want to say about that. Right on, buddy. Right on, right on. And uh, it's infectious around here. A bunch of our colleagues have gotten on board and and done exactly the same thing. So uh, good on everyone who... uh, who tackles that, and even if you're not successful the first time, still good on you for uh, for giving it a shot. Um, something that goes with smoking for a lot of people, beer. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about a new commercial. <laughs> it's more of a short documentary uh, promoting the virtues of Heineken, or Heineken's just kind of in the background, or maybe just juxtaposes or juxtapositions the idea that a lot of our differences can be settled, perhaps, over a beer. We talk about politicians that we'd most like to have a beer with. And I know that sometimes, uh, you know what, let's just go for a beer. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's a good way to settle some things. So we'll talk about that in just a few minute, moments and uh, we'll set up the rest of the show here, including uh, we know that Sterling Line Parkway and Keniston Boulevard is the source of a lot of excitement today as the new outlet mall opened its doors at 10 o'clock. Hundreds of people in line. If you were in that line, we'd like to hear from you. Shoot us a text, 204-780-6868. Were you impressed? Were you disappointed? Somewhere in between. And there's a big event coming to that same intersection starting a month from yesterday. Curios. Cabinet of Curiosities. Cirque du Soleil will be playing under the big top from June 2nd to July 9th. I want to say, yes, June 2nd to July 9th. You can buy tickets at CirqueDuSoleil.com. And we're going to have a chat at 1.45 today to talk sort of about the business aspect of it because they're looking to hire 200 people for various roles, merchandising clerks, ushers, box office clerks, costume day assistants. The list goes on. They need a lot of people. It's a huge production. I don't know if you remember the size of the big top for the last thing that was there. It was the... It was the uh, horse show. I just can't think of Cavalia? the name. Cavalia? Cavalia's a son's right. Was it Odiseo or something you along those lines? you got to bang on, buddy. So that was a huge thing that they did there. So it's going to be something along a similar magnitude for this. And you also have to imagine that there'll be a lot of people coming from Saskatchewan, northern Ontario, northwest Ontario, northern Minnesota, North Dakota, coming to the show because the closest that it's getting otherwise, they're in uh, Houston, Texas right now until May 21st. Uh, they'll be going to Edmonton after they leave Winnipeg. So there's a vast part of the continent where people will come to see this uh, Cirque du Soleil show. Yeah, I'm excited to see it. I've uh, only seen, no, no, I've now seen two Cirque shows because I saw one in Vegas and then I saw Taruk 
The first flight. That's right. We happened to, you were there too. We were I just, did. You were sitting across the uh, the rink and we but, couldn't see each other. That's right. So we'll talk to Kevin Donnelly about that uh, at True North Sports and Entertainment. And in our second hour, we had a pretty heavy show yesterday. I won't tell you that it's going to be any different between two and three o'clock this afternoon. We're going to talk about sexual abuse and we're going to focus on the sexual abuse of uh, young boys in particular and how sometimes... Uh, their issues, their abuse gets swept under the carpet, how certain safety nets that are available aren't necessarily always there when you expect them to be. And we'll also talk about the prevalence and the things you should be watching for to keep your kids and those around you safe from those that are, are looking to exploit them. Very good. Uh, so in the meantime, this Heineken ad. We're sitting at Silo Mission yesterday, and while we're waiting for, we were the first ones. We were the keeners. Uh, <laughs> Always. We, sh- we showed up first. Uh, that's that. It, it, it's just it happened to not pointing the finger at anybody. We're not saying we're better. We just we were we got there early. So while we were waiting uh, for others to show, so we could go on the tour, Greg uh, pulls out his phone. And he says, "Hey, look at this," and he starts showing me this ad for Heineken. It's a new. It, well, it's branded as an ad. I don't know if it's if they're branding it as an ad. It's more of a short film, really. It's 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 shown to be like a like a I don't know if a mini documentary is the short a short film essentially. So I was right away. I thought, well, an ad, and I I, I didn't look at how long it was. I just saw, saw it going, and after a minute goes, ninety seconds, like how long is this thing? So I ended up kind of tuning out, which I didn't give it a fair shake. What is the ad about, Greg? Well, I think your first reaction was, uh, it's fake. Those are actors. Mm-hmm. That's fake. And so essentially what it is, is two people are invited into a warehouse. There's three sets of two people get invited into this warehouse. And there's a, a voice over a loudspeaker that gives them certain instructions. And they've never, supposedly, these people have never met before. And they're asked to follow these instructions very succinctly. And so what they do is they they work together, first of all, to uh, to build a piece of furniture, flat pack furniture. You could call it Ikea stool or something similar. And they work together on that. And then the task that they're assigned gets a little bit bigger. And finally, their last task is to build a bar. So they put this bar together. And then suddenly they're asked to watch some images up on the screen. Well, we've seen these images and these video clips before at the beginning of the documentary slash commercial. And what they do is highlight who the people involved in the filming of this documentary slash commercial are, some of their political views, some of their personal views on everything from transgender individuals uh, to politics. Well, shall we, should we play the ad? I think the voices are different enough that, you know, it loses, I think, some of its impact without the visuals, but... Well, let's do it. Let's try We'll give it a shot. Well, and if we decide it's not working, then we'll pull the plug. Well, we'll give it a shot. Here is the ad. It's called Worlds Apart. I would describe my political views as the new right. I say that I'm left. Two strangers divided by their beliefs, walking into a room. Feminism today is man-hating. I would describe myself as a feminist 100%. So I'll just pause it. So those, those comments were not made to each other. They were made separately, individually. They're now walking into this factory sort of room for the very first time. (laughs) 
I don't believe that climate change exists. We're not taking enough action on climate change. I think it's about time these people got off their high horse and started looking for credible problems that actually exist. It's absolutely critical that trans people have their own voice. That's not right. You can't, you know, you're, you're a man, be a man, or you're a female, be a female. Women do need to remember that we need you to have our children. Could I be friends with someone that says a woman's place is in the home? Um... Right, OK, well, I'm an expert at flat packs. If you have any trouble, just watch me. So it looks like I've got your instructions here. I think so. Let me help you. Let's have just that bit there. Describe what it is like to be you in five adjectives. OK. Frustrating. Dedicated. Opinionated. Lucky. Ambitious. Offensive. Solemn. I have ups and downs. Strong. I don't want to say attacked. So what's happening in this part of the video is these individuals have been asked to describe themselves a little bit in essentially five words or phrases so that you can get an idea of who they think they are themselves and so that the individual that they're working with now, and you can tell that they're working somewhat as a team, right, mm-hmm. as in putting together that first project. And so now the, now the experiment is to, you know, I'm going to describe myself how I see myself to you. Understood. Name three things you and I have in common. We're both male, we're both confident, and we're both loudly spoken. We know each other better than people who've known each other for 10 minutes should. You seem quite ambitious and positive, and you've got this really, um, got a glow. Do you know what I'm <laughs> saying? Your aura's pretty cool. I'm sensing. Are you uh, former military or something? People have said that, but there is no, really? there is no history. So are you then? Ex. Ex-military? Um, yeah. If you're ex-military, I'm very proud of you already. Well... So... I grew up... Uh, in a bit of a rough state. I've experienced homelessness. I've known what it's like to have absolutely nothing. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm definitely most grateful just just for life. We've only just met, but I think you're the sort of person that would listen to me and we'd have a discussion rather than argue. Yeah, you could hang out with, man. Let's go. My chance. Goodness sake. You're right, mate. So now they're building their bars, their portable bars. Oh, yeah. There you go. Basically, I think we just bought a bar. Yeah. Okay. Here you are. <laughs> Each take a bottle and place it on its corresponding markings on the bar. Attention. Please now stand to watch a short film. Feminism today is definitely an excuse for misandry, man-hating. If somebody said to me that climate change is destroying the world, then I'd say that is total piffle. So transgender, it is very odd. We're not set up to understand or see things like that. So now what's being shown are the original comments that we've seen at the beginning of this mini doc, and they're being played for one another. So these are unedited. Once again, we're putting everything in quotation marks, unedited comments of the individuals involved that are in this room together that are now sitting at a bar together with a beer open sitting at a stool with one another, and now these revelations are being let out of the bag on a giant screen within this warehouse space. I am a daughter, a wife. I am 
transgender? I feel like the battle for feminism definitely isn't done. The fight is never going to be over, if I'm honest with you. You now have a choice. You may go, or you can stay and discuss your differences over a beer. One guy's walking out. I'm only joking. <laughs> You're happy for a second, then. Well, I'm having a drink. I'm having a drink. Yeah. I want to discuss. Beer. Yeah, beer and discuss. Cheers. At the end of the day, mate. I've reaching out to people, you. yeah. And, you know, even if you wanted to convince people about your point, the productive thing to do would be to sit it's down engage. and have a engage. I've been brought up in a way where everything's black and white, but life isn't black and white. Yeah, I'm just me. Yeah. <laughs> Smash the patriarchy. <laughs> I'll give you my mobile number, you give me yours, uh -huh. and we'll keep in touch. I'd have to tell my girlfriend that I'll be texting another girl. <laughs> So that's the new Heineken ad. It's been out for about a week now. It's called Open Your World. And we're going to have to pause for a moment to carry on the discussion momentarily because we need to check your forecast. That's coming up next. 122 talking about this new Heineken advert, as they call it, over in Great Britain. You can find it uh, online. It's uh, received millions of views. A lot of people calling it the anti Pepsi commercial to a certain extent, Brett. Well, that Pepsi ad, the, the Kendall Jenner one, was universally uh, loathed, mocked for trying to mask. I think I saw one description saying trying to compare activism as the new Coachella, you know, to make it cool. It's something cool that you should do. And uh, I didn't really have a problem with that. I just thought it was kind of a hokey sort of silly ad. But uh, so people are saying, well, this new Heineken one makes a much better attempt to to say, hey, listen, you know, let's celebrate our differences in a constructive way as opposed to fighting with each other. You you like this. Yes, I, I did, because I've been an advocate for simply sitting down uh, and breaking bread with individuals that you don't know as a way to get to know them and to get to know their story as a way to break down barriers. I've experienced it firsthand. There's simply no better way, in my opinion, to learn a little bit about someone than to go out for a drink with them or have a meal with them. Think about in your work experience. The first time you really get to know somebody at a new workplace is the first time you go out for a beer with them. After work on a Friday, you have a couple sips of beer and your true personality tends to come out for better or for worse. But I think you learn a lot about someone uh, when you either A, and engage in a project, get your hands dirty, elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder, or have a beverage with them and start sharing. Start sharing unadulterated and unfiltered. So the I like the message of this particular ad. Again, it's about four and a half minutes long from Heineken. But the problem... I had three problems, really. One of them was that it's too long. You know, it's uh, when you, you know it's coming from a product or something, you think of it as a commercial. Unless they specifically say, watch this short film from presented by Heineken or something. Then it might change my perception. But right there, I'm thinking, okay, then if it's an ad, it should be an ad-appropriate length. No more, like, if it's an internet thing, maybe 90 seconds. Okay. But yeah, I start, so my attention span disappeared after 90 seconds. I had already looked away when Greg was watching it in the, the waiting room at Silo Mission. So problem two, I thought, as Greg mentioned, 
some of the people came off like actors. A lot of these ads that say they're using real people, but they're really, you can tell they're actors, but they still kind of seem like real people. Um, and I don't mind it so much if they're selling a truck or whatever, because you know it's, it's an ad, and they're not trying to hide that fact. But in this case, they came off like actors. If you want to use real people, use real people. In this, it ends up being a nice story. It's a fiction. Then market it like that. Here's our short film where we're trying to tell you a story. And problem three, it's a still a beer ad. They're just selling beer and they're disguising their beer ad as this social commentary. And I know that big companies do that all the time. Coca-Cola, I think, is the one that jumps top of mind. I mean, sure. it's something they all do to try to tug at the heartstrings to get you to buy a beer. It's not unusual. It's not a brand new form of advertising, right? No, absolutely not. But I think that it just... It, it's disingenuous to me. And the fact that they they kind of just say, oh, well, this guy's a neo-Nazi, but it's okay to, I'm going to sit down and have a beer with this guy, and we'll get a, we'll solve the world's problems over built by building a, an Ikea bar and having, and cracking a Heineken. Yay! I, it doesn't, doesn't work for me. The end. Call me gullible. But I like the idea of this sort of thing being approached in a different sort of way. Somebody's got to pay for the production, right? Nothing in this life is free. We know that, plain and simple. And it costs money to create scenarios and to produce a short film. Tie it to an advertisement for beer. Tie the beer into the short film in a unique fashion. And uh, I think you've got something. I like the idea that... Uh, working with someone, like I say, shoulder to shoulder can break down barriers and the idea of sharing your views over a cold one. I think that's kind of a universal premise and something that we can all wrap our head around. It's a nice story, but like I said, it's just a story masquerading as an ad for Heineken. Coming up to the 130 News on 680 CJOB. 134 this Wednesday afternoon. Hope you have a fantastic day. It looks gorgeous out from where we're sitting. 680 CJOB. Don't forget, uh, you can text us anytime. Your traffic issues, 780-6868. We'll be happy to share those and pass them along to everyone. He's Brett. I'm Greg. We've been talking about this new Heineken uh, advert, commercial, mini documentary, movie, film, flick, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Brett, a little skeptical. I think that would be fair to call it that. Yep. Brett. I uh, I enjoyed the message, and I'm a little bit of a, a, a sappy guy, as you might have figured out by now. So these sort of things kind of work on me. The idea of of using the money that a corporation has uh, to not only sell some product, but also to spread a good message. And it reminded me of a commercial from Master Foods in Australia. And they did a film, and it's uh, just over a minute and a half long. It's had close to 2 million views over uh, the time that it was published just over a year ago. And they asked parents, who would you like most to have dinner with? And then they asked their kids the same question. Play a little bit of that for you right now. Living or dead, who would you choose? Kylie Minogue. Oh. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Oh, God, I wouldn't have a clue. I know, straight up. Yeah. Paul Hogan. Kim Kardashian. No, no, no. I'd like to have dinner with Justin Bieber. <laughs> what? He's not coming to my house. No, um... <laughs> 
I'd have Bob Hawke. Dave Hughes. Barry Humphreys. Jimi Hendrix. People who have made a difference in the world, maybe Nelson Mandela at the dinner table. So now they're going to bring in the kids and ask them the exact same question. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, who would you choose? Probably our whole family, like a whole extended family. Mum and Dad. Mum and Dad. Does it have to be a celebrity? Could it be family? We love it. We talk about how school is. We ask Mum and Dad how their day was. Family. Yeah, Mum and Dad. Family! Who would you like to have a dinner with? Now, once again, could these be actors? With us. I suppose they could be. I like to believe in the purity of the art form of film and if it's being presented in a way that suggests that these kids are answering these questions honestly and their parents' reactions to their answers are honest and the parents' answers to the question in the first place dominated by celebrities were honest and I think this is a pretty powerful message regardless of who it's attached to. It's a cute, it's a cute message. You know, and I, again, I don't disagree with the message, but it's the source of the message that makes me kind of roll my eyes. And, you know, hey, call me jaded. I realize I'm jaded from working in a newsroom for 14 years. But uh, let me just read you an excerpt from an article because one of the interesting things, I think actually the most interesting thing about this ad is not the ad itself or whether or not it's fake or not. It's the reaction because it's heavily divided and there are there is so much. <laughs> As I, was, I just Googled Heineken ad fake and dozens of hits on this. I could have sat there reading articles in this for the next three days. There were lots of options. And it was either like, it's amazing and here's why and... You know, the Pepsi ad sucks and Heineken got it right. Or it's uh, headlines like, here's why that Heineken ad is even worse than the Pepsi ad. Oh, my. For example, okay, I want to read you this excerpt from the Huffington Post. This is from somebody named Didi Delgado. If you ask me to describe the worst blind date ever, it would go something like this. We arrive at an abandoned warehouse for drinks. <laughs> My date looks like a cross between John Malkovich and Britney Spears when she was struggling, <laughs> when she shaved her head. I can tell I'm going to need to get drunk to get through this. But first, for no discernible reason, we have to build an entire bleeping bar from scratch. Now I'm sweating. Midway through the date, it's revealed that the person I'm working with is an actual neo-Nazi. A strained conversation ensues about why my humanity is not up for debate. Then we drink the third crappiest beer on the planet until one of us dies from <laughs> kidney failure at the end. Yes, that's a that's an exaggeration for the sake of writing. And if you want to see that, the headline again for that is, here's why that Heineken ad is even worse than the Pepsi ad. Let me read one more quick excerpt and then uh, you can counter. This is from The Guardian, from somebody named Jamie Peck. whose headline is, hate the Pepsi ad but love the Heineken one, you've been duped. Brands are not your friends. I know I'm not the first person to say this, but it bears repeating. They don't care about social justice. They exist solely to sell you crap you probably don't need. Still, this has not stopped the liberal internet from wetting its collective pants over a recent feel-good political ad for Heineken beer. So I think that... Again, just to reinforce, this is this stuff is more interesting. It's the the anger. It's either people love it, and here's why, or people hate it. I don't really hate it. I'm just kind of like, ugh. I just it's more of an eye roller for me. 
I guess part of this that plays into <laughs> the discussion is that sense that we're as divided as we've ever been mm-hmm. in terms of political views in particular. And so that this is an opportunity within this doc to break down some barriers. And so that's what they're trying to do. And the fact that so many people have put pen to paper or got on a keyboard and mashed out an opinion on this suggests from a marketing standpoint, this may be doing exactly what Heineken had hoped. Mm -hmm. And the fact that we're talking about it this afternoon, uh, many other talk shows will be doing that around the world. And so from that standpoint, maybe the social message is getting through. Whether, like you say, whether you like the medium and the way the message was presented and produced, uh, we're still talking about it. I mentioned the fact that I, I think that's a you know one of the best ways for for guys to break down barriers and to get to know people at work is to have a beer with them. Kevin, the garbage man, says as men breaking bread is one of the best ways to talk and be open with each other. That's why barbecues at work help with morale. There's lots of examples as to why this sort of thing works and and helps build relationships uh, in our in our personal lives. And I listen. I, I again. I, I'm not. I don't have a problem with the message. I think actually the message is important, if not a little hackneyed on on Heineken's part. Hackneyed. Yes. Hmm, not, good word. I, I hope I used it correctly. I think you did. And uh, because I do think that it is important to be able to sit down and, and have conversations with people who you don't necessarily agree with on everything. And I think that it's one of the, it's like when you go on your first date, you know, you don't talk about politics, right? Isn't that one of the rules? Don't talk about politics in your first date. Right. Because that can send things badly astray. Um, but I think if you can sit and have a civil discussion about the things that you disagree on, that's great. But some of the things that are presented in this ad as things like, I don't believe in in transgender or women are here to have my baby. Like these are downright awful things. Well, they're very deep seated for these individuals. So to just sit and have a chat, have a beer and then to act like, Oh, everything's okay. I think that's where the message gets lost for me is they're, they're just, it's almost like they're saying it's okay to think like this. That's an acknowledgement that people do think like this. And this might be one approach to help break down is to see people for who they are, acknowledge the fact that, yeah, that's my deep-seated belief, and there might be an opportunity for me to, uh, someone that says, I don't believe in transgenders, sit across from someone, maybe it's the first transgender person this guy's ever met, and go, geez, I just spent 45 minutes, half an hour, however long it was, working side by side with this person. She's actually not too bad. She's former military, says, geez, just for that, you have my respect. And so to get away from the headline that this guy's a neo-Nazi to realize that, yeah, he's a a person with some deep-seated beliefs that uh, for whatever reason are part of who he is, he's conquering that somewhat. I don't know. I think that there's something special about that. uh, Michael has a good point here. I don't know too many people who give a rip about some advert which tries too hard. You have to be simple-minded to be triggered by something like that. Oh, thank you. I I think uh, Michael just called me simple-minded, so uh, that may be the case. Well, and hey, and like this is this is one of the differences between Mackling and McGarry is Greg is an eternal optimist, and I tend to be kind of a cynic, kind of a grump, Oscar the Grouch, uh, often. So I'm more Elmo. You're more Oscar the Grouch. <laughs> Steve said I would really like to see Hillary and Trump have a couple drinks together. Well, you know what? You never know. There was a time when they did used to have drinks together. 
Oh, yeah, not so much anymore. Should mention as well, traffic, here's a text. Traffic is jugged. <laughs> what? Going northbound on Keniston. Thanks, new outlet mall. <laughs> That's a text at 204-780-6868. Uh, and here's one final text. The ad does exactly what it was meant to do. The same thing that one of Canada's greatest radio people, Charles Adler, did, and I would add does, from the 9 until midnight on 680 CJOB. It incites conversation, it gets people talking, and it works. It is coming up to time for your forecast, and after that we're going to talk about Cirque du Soleil on 680 CJOB. I'm Greg. He's Brett. 148 on this gorgeous May the 3rd. Hope you're having a fantastic day. We mentioned the outlet mall opening at the intersection of Sterling Lion Parkway and uh, Caniston Boulevard. Uh, one of our listeners saying uh, that traffic is jugged. Thanks, outlet mall. <laughs> I imagine <laughs> I've never heard that terminology before. It might be a synonym for another word with an ED at the end of it, but we digress. Another uh, fantastic event. This one, a temporary one, uh, no less spectacular, going to be taking place at the very same intersection starting on June the 2nd, Brett McGarry. Curios, Cabinet of Curiosities. It is a Cirque du Soleil event. The show runs from June 2nd to July 9th, and you can buy tickets at CirqueDuSoleil.com. So this, you know, when we talk about shows that come through the city, we often talk about shows that are here for like three, four days. This is here for weeks. So it's going to have a significant impact on our economy, so we wanted to talk to this with Kevin Donnelly from True North Sports and Entertainment. Mr. Donnelly, thank you so much for joining us today. Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here. So I guess one of the things we wanted to talk to you about first was the fact that you this production needs a whole lot of people, local people, to come yes. to work for a few weeks. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it's one of the side benefits of having an, an event like this. I mean, these things do bring tourism, they bring economic activity to the city, um, but they need employment as well. They need people to work, so they put a little army to work locally. For the, They're going to be here for five weeks, June the 2nd through July the 9th, uh, and lots of people will be employed locally. How many shows are we talking in total, Kevin? I think we're at 45 shows over the five weeks. Um, uh, I think that's where we're at right at the moment, yeah. So we could get close to 90,000 people. Uh, combined for the show. Is that an accurate uh, guesstimate on my part? Your math is pretty good. Yeah, I know. I, th- I think that's, you know, in and around, you know, uh, the expectation, the, p- the potential for it. So it could even go a little higher than that. Um, but it's consistent with what we saw when we had Cavalia, the show that came a year ago to the same location. And, and um, you know, we've always said that, you know, Manitobans and Winnipeggers, they will support the, that, that top tier. You know, if, it, if the entertainment is great, people people want in and so this is uh, another example of that another opportunity for those people we know people in winnipeg will travel to minneapolis fargo grand forks to uh regina god forbid uh if there's a show that isn't coming to winnipeg do we know the reach of a show like this and out of that ninety thousand or, sh- or so do we have a guess as to how many people are coming from outside the metro area to enjoy a production like this uh, not yet, but you know the template that we're looking at really closely for this is is what happened with Cavalia a year ago, and that show we had a hundred thousand people uh, attend the different events. It ran for six weeks, 
so just a little bit longer than this. But over 25% of those tickets were sold outside of the perimeter. So some of them might have come from Headingley and Selkirk, but we had Saskatchewan, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota, Iowa, Ontario, Quebec, uh, it you know it went it went wide and far and twenty five thousand people at the very minimum came in for dinner came in filled up the gas tank before they went out and many of them you know hotels and restaurants and everything else. Kevin, can you talk a little bit about the location? Why does this location work so well? They, you know, the, the, the magic in, in all these things is the visibility, of course. So Cavalia put up a huge tent. This will have a, an enormous tent, just like the Cavalia one. Cirque do a tremendous job of dressing the, the grounds. Um, having that visibility is really a factor. Sometimes, uh, you know, you want to be where there's a lot of street traffic, where people can walk by in restaurants and shops. This is the, the vehicular traffic that has such a huge count. Uh, and, you know, with people that are concerned about the outlet mall, Opening you know, these events do happen, you know, off off those peak hours. We're evenings and weekends, for the most part, with the Cirque du Soleil shows. So I think it's a great compliment to what's going on there. This is a huge retail activity with a lot of eyeballs on it. Now we had IKEA opening up before. This isn't all that different. So uh, visibility, you know, lo- location, location, location. Everything has its its uh, benefits, but. The drive-by traffic at this spot is fantastic. So, you know, we talk about, uh, we bandy that word world class around a little bit uh, in our community, and sometimes I think it gets overused. But in this situation, in this instance, we're talking about a show that is coming here from, well, it's currently in Houston. It's going to be performing in Edmonton, Portland, Vancouver. Does this just sort of reaffirm Winnipeg's uh, uh, place on the map? And in, in, in terms of routing for other events, does this just increase our reputation kevin uh undoubtedly undoubtedly i mean before houston it was in miami so typically cirque du soleil we've been fortunate enough to have cirque bring their presentations into the arena they sit down for a week this is the first time we've had them bring one of their tent spectacles and it's where this kind of entertainment was first imagined and created but typically it only goes to major markets. So you might see it at Santa Monica on the pier, you know, Miami out of the stadium or Chicago or someplace or Toronto, of course, Montreal. Uh, the first time it's come to Winnipeg, we're super thrilled about it. And we think that it does elevate and put us in a new set of peers. Don't compare us to Winnipeg, compare us to Vancouver, uh, or don't compare us to Regina, but compare us to Vancouver, Toronto, Montreal, Miami, Houston, you know, and that list. Hey, Kevin. Sorry, Kevin, I turned my mic off there for a second. Uh, I would imagine, I mean, your your whole deal is uh, arena shows and stadium shows, so you must have seen one or two Cirque du Soleil shows in your lifetime, yeah? Sure, probably more than a few. Do you have a favorite? You know what, when I saw, uh, I like O, the the water show in in Vegas, but uh, I'm looking forward to this one. I'm told it's spectacular. I saw... A tent show last uh, a year ago in Montreal when we were negotiating this, this arrangement. Uh, so I love seeing them in the, the the purpose-built locations. You know that they create the tent, they create the look that fits the show, and then they and then they they build around it. So that's the part that I'm looking forward to. What did it feel like? What was I guess the difference between because O is actually my favorite as well, but uh, mm-hmm. the difference between those sort of stadium shows where the lo- like that location is specific to that show versus uh, a traveling big top kind of show. Well, you know, I, I like when you walk into the tent, when you walk into the grounds 
for a big top show, you start to get sort of circaized right from your arrival. So it becomes all immersive. There's there's performers that 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 roam throughout. It's the big top. It's kind of like you know the recollection the recollection of going to the circus as a kid sort of thing. So it it really is a larger than life experience. It starts at the parking lot. You drive by. You you, you, know, you, you start to anticipate what's going to unfold and. That's a different and, and, again, a more complete experience than coming to see it in the arena. I like the arena shows, but it's still in the arena, and that doesn't have that sort of fully engaged kind of environment. All right, Kevin Donnelly, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate it, all right? All right, thanks very much. Okay, Kevin Donnelly with True North Sports and Entertainment talking about Cirque du Soleil's Curios, Cabinet of Curiosities, coming June 2nd to July 9th at the Big Top, under the Big Top at Sterling Lion and Keniston. They're looking to hire 200 people, by the way, merchandising clerks, ushers, box office clerks, costume day assistants, line cooks, costume dressers. The list goes on. There's a website for this. It's adeco.ca, and you can find it there. If you can't find it, if you're looking to maybe apply or perhaps maybe one of your kids wants to apply for a job at this just send me an email, brett at cjob.com, gmac at cjob.com, and we can get you the link. And if you want to buy tickets to the show, cirquedusoleil.com has that as well. And just a heads up as well, uh, we're going to there will be more conversation with Kevin Donnelly this afternoon on 680 CJOB to update the MTS re-entry policy, which is getting a, a little bit of a switcheroo. So we'll tell you about that in Global News at 2 o'clock. It's 2.05 on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. The uh, next hour will be uh, a serious one, a a topic that maybe doesn't get discussed as often as it should. And our next two guests are very grateful for the fact that we are spending some time talking about this. If you have kids around you, you may want to consider having them leave the room. It's a sensitive subject, but one that needs to be broached, and that's one of sexual abuse against male victims. And those cases of sexual abuse are less often reported. And this leaves abused males most likely to be without support in our society. Dr. Raymond Abdul-Rahman is a clinical psychologist with Clinic Psychology, website clinicpsychology.com. He's also the director of Clinic Psychology's Public Mental Health Initiative, and he joins us now on 680 CJOB. Today we're going to talk about the cases of sexual abuse against male victims. They are less likely and less often reported leaving abused males more likely to be without support in our society. Why are these incidents less likely to be reported? You know, I think it has a lot to do with um, the way we talk about sexuality and the way that we talk about masculinity in our society. Um, you know, there there are rates that talk about uh, rates of sexual assault or sexual abuse against women and girls. Uh, to say that one in three girls will have experienced that over the course of their life, at least before adulthood. Um, and then there's stats that talk about boys being one in six, um, and those are the commonly touted stats. But what tends to happen is um, we find that when we ask questions in different ways, we find that the rates actually turn out to be very similar. So, for example, so some research, including my own, will say that about 75% of victims don't see their abuse as abuse, that they find ways to rationalize it. So. You know, so you ask people, have they been sexually abused? Most people will say no. Most victims of sexual abuse will say no, um, simply because they found another way to rationalize that experience. They might say it's a negative experience, but they won't necessarily say it's abuse. 
And I think because of gender roles and norms with masculinity, I think a lot of times when boys are sexually abused, um, they find another way to classify that experience, and so it tends to go unreported. Um, We also find that professionals tend to not ask. Only about 3% of health professionals will ask boys if they were sexually abused or had unpleasant sexual experiences. I think that goes with some discomfort in us talking to boys about that or this expectation that boys, um, you know, are less likely to be abused. And so we don't ask. And so the rates tend to be lower. Are there any sort of signs that one can observe to to point that maybe there's something going on in a boy's life that is along these lines? You know, the interesting thing is that it's not always a very clear-cut thing, um, but Sometimes the things that are probably notable um, for boys who've been sexually abused are things that we tend to associate with masculinity. So, for example, hypersexuality at a very early age or being sexually promiscuous at an early age might indicate that something is happening. There's no guarantee that's the case, but you can see that typically what tends to happen is people um, would just see that as being a masculine thing, right? A boy is kind of sowing his oats or whatnot, but unfortunately that's not the case. Um, Sometimes there can be behavior problems or psychological difficulties. Um, sexual abuse is an interesting thing is because there's not always a very... What you tend to see is a cluster of everything all together at one time as opposed to just, you know, just one or two difficulties here and there. You tend to see behavior problems. You tend to see acting out. Sometimes in the very severe cases of sexual abuse, you'll tend to see violence. Um, but not all sexual abuse is very acute and, and very... Um, severe, as I would say. And so what tends to happen is you tend to see more of this uh, hypersexuality earlier on in in kids' age. When should we be talking to our kids about this being uh, something that they they need to be aware of, this idea uh, of being victimized? We don't want to scare our kids, but I I know that in the past we've had conversations with psychologists and and other uh, professionals uh, that that, that work with kids, and they say, you know, typically our instincts as parents might be to talk to our kids about things at a a certain time and a certain age, and quite likely when we've decided to talk to them as parents, somebody has already planted a seed, uh, and they've already had conversations about these things, not necessarily uh, this exact topic, but certainly with regard to sexuality overall. Well, I think we certainly need to start having those conversations at a very early age. Um, I think sexuality is a part of humanity, and I think we need to inform our kids and generally our society about what's appropriate and what's not, right? Um, so we have to start that early, and we just have to do it in age-appropriate ways, uh, including limits of who should be touching a child at any point or any place, right? Um, so I think starting with children earlier with the age-appropriate language I think is a very good idea. I don't think we need to be waiting until, um, you know, they're... They're, they're teenagers. Dr. Raymond Abdul is a clinical psychologist with Clinic Psychology, their website, clinicpsychology.com. We're talking about cases of sexual abuse against male victims. They're often less reported and leaving abused males more likely to be without support. How does abuse often lead to promiscuity? You talked about how it can lead to hypersexuality, and that's not just in males, but it's in, in females as well. So yeah. how, why does that happen? It seems counterintuitive to me. Well, what happens is um, it's all about perceptions and and attributions, I would say. I think having those experiences early on often tends to make young people feel like that's what love is, right? And when people are seeking out love or affection, um, they tend to look for it sexually because that's what they've 
had that connected with. Um, so I think there's a misattribution there. So when we talk about that, that misattribution yeah. of love, affection, why is that? Is that because of who is typically perpetrating these acts on our kids? Yeah, so most most perpetrators of sexual abuse tend to be known to the victim. Um, even when they're not, you know, they're often told that uh, this is, like they're, they're told that this is what they're valued for, their sexuality. And so children or young people at that age tend to see that's where their value is at. And so when they try to look for some sense of validation or a sense of self-worth, they tend to look for that sexually. Grooming is a word that comes up when we have this discussion. It's impossible not to discuss it, Dr. Abdurrahman. Yeah, absolutely. So sexual abuse tends not to happen like right away. It doesn't happen like uh, out of the, you know, people don't go uh, right for the act. They tend to gradually groom their victims, um, you know, so try to befriend them, try to get closer to them. And then they kind of hint at slight, slightly sexual things. So it pulls the victim along until they get to the point where they might actually perpetrate a form of sexual abuse. And sexual abuse is interesting. Like, it's not always, um, you know, it's not always just rape. Um, you know, it can be exposure to sexual material. It could be, you know, being sexually inappropriate. It could be molestation. Uh, it could be a broad range of things. And each thing can vary, can have a varied impact on an individual depending on several factors that have an impact, including the relation, um, of the person to the victim, you know, the gender, um, how close they are, how often it occurred, and includes the perception that the uh, victim would take out of that as well, too. Dr. Abdul Raymond, when we talk about uh, acts of sexual abuse against young male victims, uh, are we talking about typically male perpetrators or can it be female perpetrators as well? Yeah, most most um, perpetrators, and I, I think this goes to the way that we ask questions, but most perpetrators of sexual abuse are male. Um, and that would be for both male and female victims. Um, so, but what we, how we tend to see that will vary. So most of the time, if we think about a victim or perpetrators of sexual abuse, we're thinking about, you know, stereotypically old men. Um, and that's not always the case. Uh, that can range. Uh, so individuals who perpetrate sexual abuse are sometimes intentionally doing it. And sometimes they can be juvenile. So, you know, up to a third of perpetrators of sexual abuse can be other juvenile males. And that just could be, usually those people have had a history of sexual abuse themselves and are just acting out sexually as well too, but what they're doing is, is still a form of sexual abuse to, to the other kids, to the perpetrators. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example of things that we tend not to think about, and it's kind of controversial. Um, but sexual abuse and hazing, for example. Um, so a very good, a good number, a large percentage of hazing rituals tend to be sexually abusive, or have been. Um, I think there's been some shifts, but I don't think we've made accurate changes in that. And about 40% uh, in my research of, of hazing rituals uh, in sport actually are a form of sexual abuse, and they tend to be carried out by other young males, you know, juveniles. Um, I think coaches need to be mindful. I think sometimes people let that go because, they, again, they go by that concept of what's normal, and they say this is just boys being boys. But when you actually look at the acts that are being done, they're sexual abuse. Now, the interesting thing is it really doesn't matter what we call it, um, you know, people can say it's hazing or whatever, um, but the outcome tends to be the same. So if you look at the consequential side effects or the symptoms of those experiences, they actually tend to be the same as people who are sexually abused um, in a classic stereotypical way. Well, you talk about team sport. 
Yeah. And that idea of being a, a family, that toge- togetherness, you're supposed to be watching out for one another. And that, so that plays right into the hands sometimes of uh, a predator, but it also plays into the hands of the idea of not coming forward, right? Because if yep. you want to be part of the team, you've got to do what the team does, even if you're uncomfortable with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I remember... Um I remember there was a physiotherapist I had who was asking me about my research at one point in time. And he said, you know, you're absolutely right. He's like, um, he's like, the only thing that kept me going through these events was knowing that I could do it to somebody else the next year. Hmm. And then the only reason that uh, I didn't say anything is because I didn't want to get pushed off the team. There's a huge pressure to perform, right, and to be a part of a team. And so many times parents will stay quiet, you know, coaches will stay quiet, and, and, the, and the kids and the team members will stay quiet. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman is a clinical psychologist with Clinic Psychology. We're talking about cases of sexual abuse against male victims, and we will continue this conversation after your forecast, which is up next. Brett McGarry with Craig Mackling. We are talking about cases of sexual abuse against male victims. They're often less reported or simply not reported, leaving these abused males to be more likely to be without support. Dr. Raymond Abdulrahman is a clinical psychologist with Clinic Psychology. He is our guest this half hour. How do we take steps to ensure that more victims don't fall through the cracks? I think we need to talk more about it, right? I think we have, it's, it's interesting, we live in a society that's highly sexualized, but we have very poor sexual health information. <laughs> you know, um, sexuality is everywhere, and yet if you were to talk to somebody about what, what good sexual health is, most people don't know you know, what some of those things are. I think people have expectations about what sexual relationships are, what to expect out of those things. And that starts at a very early age, and that goes back to parents talking to their kids about this information. So I think, I think overall in society as a part of our mental health, we need to be talking about our sexual health, so what's normal, what's appropriate, what's a good way to behave, what's a bad way to behave. Um, many times people, like when you talk to adult men who would sexually assault uh, adult women, um, quite often the thing that's different from them to people who wouldn't do that would be their perceptions of sexuality and what, they're, what they consider to be normal and acceptable. So I think we need to be talking more about it. And I think conversations like you and I having with the media, being very open about these things, I think lend themselves to kind of preventing those kinds of problems in the future in society. We talk about uh, sexual assault as being a crime of power. Um, when we have these grooming and these long-term assaults that can happen over months, over years, over, over a decade or, or more, is that what we're talking about here is, is having a po- having power over another individual? Well, many people will talk about sexual abuse being ultimately an issue related to power, but there's also, like, it depends on who the perpetrator is, right? Um, so sexual abuse in the field and study of it is actually a quite a broad area. So, um, in some cases, depending on the perpetrator, if it's an age issue, most certainly yes. Um, but there are times where it's just an, a case of acting out and that we've missed something. So, you know, for like in hazing and that, it can certainly be an issue of abuse. But there are other times where the perpetrators are simply acting out sexually based on their own experiences. And they're not intending to be powerful. They're just overexerting. Their, they're being hypersexual because of their experience of being sexual, sexually abused. Who's perpetrating these crimes, Dr. Abdurrahman? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's no clear profile of what a sexual perpetrator is. You know, um, it's very difficult to, to ascertain. What we do know is that, according to the statistics, that the that the large majority of perpetrators are men uh, and males. Um, and again, some people might argue to say that we're not asking the right questions, and if we were to ask different questions, we might know 
male perpetrators, but there's, it's, it's a very large, overwhelming majority. That, that's the one thing that we're aware of. Um, there's some research that would talk about the perpetrators over, overwhelmingly being uh, white, men, white men, but I think those, that research is only focused in North America and, again, isn't asking the right questions. Sexual abuse is a, is a prominent issue across the world, and in that case, you're not just looking at white men. Um, what, the one thing that I would say is, is it's typically men, unfortunately. What are the right questions that should be asked when it comes to the subject of uh, perpetrators? Well, I think with regards to sexual abuse in general, we need to be talking about experiences versus just sexual abuse because sometimes we miss um, as a, you know, a victim because we're just asking them, were you sexually abused? And if, they don't, if we know that the large majority of people who have been sexually abused don't perceive it that way, then we're missing the boat. What we need to do is kind of talk about you know, what were your early experiences like? And were they positive or negative? And how old was the person who did this to you? you know, what was their position of power? I, I think those are things that we need to be asking. Um, I think when we're looking at sexual perpetrators, um, you know, I think what we need to do be what we need to be doing is talking about attitudes uh, towards what they find is acceptable for sexual behavior. And then what we can find is typically some people have. Um, less appropriate attitudes towards sexual behavior, I think, which makes them more inclined um, towards some form of perpetration. Some of these people can be incredibly close to us. Yeah, and I, w- I want to be mindful. Like, I don't think we need to be scared and worried about these kinds of things. I think the key thing is to be able to have open conversations. Um, one of the things that tends to prevent sexual abuse, the, the key factor that prevents sexual abuse is actually being able to have conversations with our children and informing them about what's appropriate and what's not. That is the key factor. Um, so I think I think that's the thing that we need to focus on in as a society. I think our sexual education is generally, you know, with all due respect, poor. Um, and I think we need to focus on that as a society. One of the most well-known sexual abusers in Canada was hockey coach Graham James. Mm-hmm. Many of his victims, uh, Todd Holt, Greg Galuli. Sheldon Kennedy, Theron Fleury have become outspoken about their experience in a variation of ways. They all came out in different fashions at different times in their lives. The long-term effect can be absolutely horrific. Maybe let's close on that, that idea of of why we need to address this and the long-term effects on victims of these crimes. Uh, Why we need to, well, I mean, this is, I... Like, let's take a step back from just the concept of sexual abuse and let's talk about sexuality. It is a concept, it is a part of who we are as human beings. And I think, I think the way in which we talk about sexuality is, is just so, it's just so, I think, skewed. You know, I think if you look at, um, I think the media and how we approach it, I think the how we look at women uh, and sexual, female sexuality, I think it's, I think we think we've come a long way and we haven't. Um, I think the way we look at male sexuality is also skewed and we haven't come a long way. So I think generally we need to have those discussions because it's an important part of who we are. I think the consequence of that is that we get to talk about what's appropriate and what's not. Um, so I think those are important issues that we need to address, generally speaking. And a big part of treatment of working with uh, survivors of sexual abuse is about going through what's normal and what's not. Because people have these skewed perceptions of what they think is appropriate. Uh, many times people will excuse the thing, or many, many times victims of abuse will blame themselves and they carry that guilt with them for a very long period of time. Um, and those are, the, I think, probably the most significant impacts that people have. Um, People have a hard time connecting with other people uh, emotionally, sexually. 
Um, I think that carries with them. I think relationships are affected. I think depression and anxiety shows up very high. Um, and of course, I think PTSD is a common symptom that you'll see with sexual abuse. The only thing is we tend not to notice it because it's so gradual. Um, whereas if somebody was in a car accident, you know, uh, that's a key event that everybody can talk about. But if somebody was sexually abused, who can talk about that? And if they're being sexually abused over the course of time, it's gradually becoming worse and worse, right? So we have this long-term trauma that's happening to that individual. So, And actually, that makes them more vulnerable to other difficulties over the course of their lives, and it takes away their concept of resiliency. So generally speaking, I think those are the reasons why I think it's important for us to address this topic, and those are the impacts that it has on individuals. Dr. Raymond Abdurrahman is a clinical psychologist with Clinic Psychology. Their website, once again, clinicpsychology.com, talking about cases of sexual abuse against male victims. And we will continue this conversation with Dr. Kirsten Wirth from Wirth Behavioral Health Services after Global News at 2.30. 2.34 on this Wednesday afternoon. Thanks for taking some time out of your day to spend it with us. Just want to remind you uh, the topic of discussion for the next half hour might be a little bit sensitive for some people and uh, younger audiences in particular, but that's why we're having this discussion, ironically enough, is to protect the young people in your world and my world. And uh, Dr. Kirsten Worth is with us now with Worth Behavioral Health Services and Dr. Wirth, you were in the studio while uh, Dr. Uh, Abdurrahman was uh, sharing his thoughts on this on this situation that d- really doesn't get enough exposure, doesn't get enough conversation surrounding it. Why, what's your take on why we don't talk about this the way we ought to? I think it's really uncomfortable to talk about sex in general, and sexual abuse is just a continuation of that, but it also comes... Um, with many strings attached to it. Uh, as um, Raymond was saying, that, that a lot of the, or the majority of the time, the perpetrators are people that the children know um, and know very well. And a lot of the times it's not just a coach or, um, you know, ex- someone who's out external to the family. Oftentimes it's someone who's internal to the family, like a grandparent or a parent or a step-parent or an aunt or an uncle or a very close family friend. And so that that then leads to all these other difficulties for people in talking about it and reporting it and believing their children when they come forward because it's very hard to believe if there's never been any indicator before. And now you're talking about, you know, shame and guilt and breaking up a family and all these other factors associated with that. Can I ask a very blunt question? Do kids lie about this? I think that a lot of children are not comfortable to talk about it. It depends on um, what, you know, how they've been raised and what they've been told they're allowed to say um, or how open they are with their parents about things or how questions are asked. And so I think often kids are, um, I mean, we usually don't think to go to our kids and say, hey, did somebody touch you in a place they shouldn't have? Um, That's not our typical family dinner discussion. And so they're not necessarily always given the chance to lie, but, but they don't always come forward either. And sometimes it's because they're told, you know, don't tell anybody. And you're going to be in trouble if you tell somebody or I'm going to lie and nobody's going to believe you anyway, that kind of thing. Um, and so sometimes it's more of an omission than a, than a, a lie per se. 
Are there instances where something could happen to a child who's maybe too young to, to really recognize, like, this is wrong, but they maybe think, well, that's kind of weird or whatever, and then the the perpetrator sort of explains it away as, oh, no, no, it's okay, and then they just end up believing that? Hopefully that, I don't know if that made sense. Yeah, but. no, abs- absolutely. Um you know, uh, Raymond was talking about uh, boys, which is really important to talk about because a lot of people uh, often focus on women and girls and sexual assaults to, to females and not so much to boys, but it, it is pretty much as prevalent. Um, and also when we're talking about boys and, and 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 even sometimes girls and women, we're talking about older people. We're not, all, you know, we're talking about adolescents and people are often forgetting that for a lot of children, this starts at 18 months of age or it starts at four months of age. And so there are children that um, they don't un- quite understand it. They don't know that it's, ne- you know, they might feel that it's wrong or they know that it's something that's never happened to them before or by anybody else, but they may not be able to verbalize it yet because maybe they don't have the language skills yet. Um, so certainly there are those factors as well. How do we hear? How do we see what's going on? How do we, you know, uh, it's one thing to have conversations and I know, uh, Raymond was very adamant about the idea of of talking about sexual sexual sexuality overall, but when we're talking about very young children, that that's really not part of the the parenting curriculum at that age necessarily, right? right? So how do how do we become aware? How do we see? How do we hear what's genuinely going on when these things are happening around us? So there are a lot of different signs, um, and lots of them are signs of other things as well. So I don't want anyone to go, oh, my goodness, my child had a, started having nightmares. They must be getting abused. That's, you know, but it's usually you know, a constellation of these different factors, and there might be some cues that will be more obvious than others. So there might be things like if they're already toilet trained, and um, you know, they might have some regression. There might be more wetting or bedwetting, even for even for um, older kids or adolescents, where there might be some regression in their toileting skills. They might have sleep disturbances or start having nightmares that you can't explain in another way, and the, and they didn't used to have them, kind of thing. Um, there might be a sudden change in eating habits, or even a I suppose a gradual change because. If if it does start out as grooming and it gradually gets worse, then it might just become part of the you know uh, the child's life. And so these changes might be kind of gradual, but they also might um, there might be sudden ones, or there might be some present sometimes and some present at other times. So there might be sudden mood swings or behavior problems, as Raymond was saying. There may be some other clues, like there might be writings or drawings or play with toys in a sexualized way. So they might start to, like they might draw a picture of like body parts or actions of things that are like, whoa, where did, where did that come from? And it's not something they would have sort of seen in a movie or, or, or caught anybody in the act of doing they shouldn't know about at that age. They might have new words for their private parts that haven't been in their common, you know, uh, description of things. They might get resistant to taking their clothes off in routine activities, like if it's time for bath or getting ready for bed or those kinds of things. They might act kind of strange about taking their clothes off in those situations. They might mimic sexual acts with like dolls or stuffies or 
things like that or be overly interested in sexual activities um, more so than what would be normal for their age. So it's hard. It's kind of hard, you know, to look at all of these things and it, there are not going to be clear indicators necessarily. There won't there may not always be, you know, exactly which ones are going to happen and which ones aren't going to happen. But there are things to certainly be aware of if you start to notice changes in your child. You you mentioned four months. This can start as early as four months old for I a think, baby. Is that what no, I heard? No, I think I said 18 months 18 that, or months? four years. Four years. If I said four months, I meant to say three or four years. No, I think you may. Well, I, rather it's four <laughs> months or 18 months. I mean, we're still talking about a baby. Yes. So... What does one do if when they realize their child has been abused for X amount of years and this is essentially what they've come to know is their normal life? What do you do? Um, the So there's a whole series of things to do, but the first thing is to support the child. So the the ultimate first thing, and if they're old enough to tell you anything, the the first thing to do is believe them. And show them that you believe them and support them, prevent any further abuse from happening. Let them know that what was happening to them was wrong and talk to them about what is okay and what's not okay. So at their at their age level, like what who should be touching their private parts and for what purpose and you know, all like personal safety type stuff. So those are things that we could be talking to our kids about, like as we as they start to learn their body parts, you know, and so anytime around, you know, 12 months of age, children are starting if they're starting to talk, they're starting to say things about their body parts. So it's never too early to start helping them label those things and talk about like who's safe and who's not safe and what's okay and what's not okay. Um, but, but believing them and making sure that they know that, you know, you love them and they didn't do anything wrong and it's not their fault and everyone's going to get the help that they need and those kinds of things, that's really important. Um, it's considered a protective factor when children are believed. And I think, you know, you asked already, well, how come people, this keeps happening or people don't get caught or people don't talk about it. Um, and some of it is around the disbelief. I've had lots of reports uh, from parents or friends about they did tell uh, their own parent and their parent just refused to believe them because it's very hard if it's, you know, say the grandparent or a close friend or a stepfather or whatever, it's really hard to believe. Why don't we take a break and then we'll go through some of the processes legal and otherwise, that need to be undertaken when this discovery is made and you feel that you can level a complaint. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the support services that should be there for you as a family, as a victim, as we can continue this difficult uh, but absolutely necessary conversation this afternoon on Mackling and McGarry. 248, Greg and... Brett with you, Dr. Kirsten Worth is with us. Worth Behavioral Health Services. We're talking about sexual abuse of children and we're, we're been mostly specific with regard to boys today because uh, boys are very susceptible uh, to not reporting this uh, and their long-term ramifications of boys not coming forward with these allegations and uh, Kirsten, you were talking about the idea of hearing and believing. What happens when we get to that point where we have grounds to pick up the phone and call authorities and, and begin 
a process of holding someone accountable for something that they've done to our to our kids? What do, what do we do? Where do what's our first step? Okay, so the first step is to. Uh, and I'm going to talk specific to Winnipeg, but you can assume that if you're not inside Winnipeg that there would be similar processes started in your region. Um, But firstly, I recommend you go down to Children's Hospital or you go see the pediatrician and, um, and you report there. They have at Children's, they have a specialized unit that um, specializes in this. So they'll come down, they'll do an examination. So they're going to look for any physical signs or um, any physical evidence that might help in a case if the case does go forward to a trial or anything like that. A lot of people don't want to make a report and will avoid doing that um, for the reasons that we already discussed. Like it's really hard. It's hard to believe and it's – and you – you want to kind of keep it in the family or um, not get somebody else in trouble or not, or it's shameful, you know, that it's your fault or you don't want other people to know. But the the important thing to remember is that the safety of other children are at risk because the perpetrator is not likely to only um, act towards one child. This is going to happen uh, again and again. And it's really important that you think about everybody's safety. So all of us, um, we are all legally obligated to protect children. And so even if you suspect that a child, you know, maybe you're a teacher or you're a staff of some kind or you're a stranger and you see something at the park, like we're all obligated to make a report. So um, because we all have the legal responsibility to take care of children. And so, it's important to emphasize that the chances of this being a one-off situation are very, very small. It is yeah, the chances of it being a one-off is small to none. So um, you can make a call to All Nations Coordinated Response Network, which is a, um anchor for, C- for CFS, and that number is 204-944-4200. So to make a report, because they'll actually send out a team, they'll do a whole investigation, and if there's nothing there, then at least you um, did your part to, to help. If you go through the hospital, they're going to follow up with that call. So they're, you're going to have CFS follow up with you because CFS is going to want to make sure that your child is protected and taken care of. You're also going to get involved with the different levels of our system. So there's justice. So you're go- you're going to probably get involved with some of the police officers who will want to know what happened. They their first concern is about making sure the child is protected and safe, and then they'll go. And then they will be um, also making sure that the perpetrator is taken care of in the sense that they're not continuing to um, harm other children. So that that's the main thing. Then um, from from there, hopefully you're getting some services. There is the child protection center through uh, through Children's Hospital where. Children should be getting automatically referred. And then there's um, victim services, which is supposed to be kind of like the family's support person or advocate that helps bridge the gap um, and explain to you what's going to happen between the police and the crown attorney. And so there's a lot of different departments and players involved. And unfortunately, it's not as smooth and coordinated as we would like it to be. And so that means that in some cases, 
Um, sometimes families don't get all the supports that they need. They don't get the answers they need they, or the information. And they don't even know they should have questions and be asking for information. And so I think the biggest the biggest point that I want to get across to families is that it you expect that the system is going to be there to support you and they're going to provide you with what you need when you need it and you just kind of wait for them to call you and make it happen. And that doesn't always happen. And so sometimes that means that you have to actually go out and seek out those supports and make the phone calls and check in with victim services and find out who your Crown attorney is or talk to the detectives yourself um, and those kinds of things so that you can make sure you know where things are at the legal process is really long, and you know if you if you come from a background of say watching Law and Order, you expect that you know your perpetrator is going to get arrested that day. They're going to be arraigned. You're gonna they're going to have a hearing. It's all going to be tied up within the next couple of weeks, and unfortunately, you know the quickest cases are like almost a year, and that's you know best case scenario. Long you know more more often than not, it's a lot longer than that, and so the chances are your perpetrator is out and about walking around and with restrictions, but um, but then there's a lot all the all the all of the effects of that that you have to deal with. And so there are a number of different supports that families can access. Um, one would be Clinic Crisis Hotline and the number for that. And you can call for any kind of a crisis, but they have specifically for sexual assault as well, 204-786-8631. There's the um, Families Against Sexual Abuse Program through New Directions where they provide funded uh counseling and different supports for families that are going through um, having having had a child be abused. You can um, find a private psychologist through the Manitoba Psychological Society at mps.ca in the referral directory. Um, there's, like I said already, the services through the Child Protection Center, through Children's Hospital at HSC, so you can call there. Um, and then also victim services through the justice system should be helping you. So there's all those different resources, and sometimes it's a matter of scoping them out yourself, making the calls yourself, and making it happen for you and your family. And uh, and you're not often in a position to be able to do that because you're in crisis, because it's a terrible thing to have happen to your um, child and your family, but sometimes you know, it's important to know that you can have a role in that, and um, it may not all happen for you the way that it should. Kirsten, thank you for this. Uh, I can't help but wonder, we, we have about 30 seconds here, but the system that you just outlined and the fact that there are so many hoops to go through, so many processes within the process, does that deter people from stepping forward in the first place, do you think? Well, I'm, I'm sure that they do, or maybe even they step forward, but then they step backwards after contacting one piece of the system and... Um, and potentially just being in crisis and isolation without getting the help that they need because they just don't know what they're supposed to do or if they can or how to get it. So. I know you're working to fix that, so we'll talk to you about that again another time. Thank Sounds you good. for sharing this with us this afternoon. Dr. Kirsten Worth is with Worth Behavioral Health Services. Do you have a website, by the way? Yeah, worthbehavioralhealth.com. The news is coming up next. 308... Thursday. He's Brett. I'm Greg. And uh, it's no 
secret that Canada is celebrating its 150th birthday. All sorts of ways to celebrate our birthday, including an art installation at St. Vitale Center. And uh, the creator of this incredible, one of the incredible pieces of work that you might see here uh, is our next guest, Shaylin Tuami. She is a local artist, 17 years old. She's a high school student from Nelson McIntyre Collegiate. Good afternoon, Shaylin, and thanks for joining us this afternoon on CJOB. Hello. Thanks for having me. So uh, tell us about this piece of art that you've created that's on display. There's a there's a kind of a cool, uh, I don't know if it's a sculpture, but it's a, a beaver on a log, and that's, uh, and that's kind of uh, one of the uh, moving pieces of this display. It's going across the country, but very proudly displayed behind this beaver on a log is, is your piece of work, and what do you call it, and what does it represent? Um, it's called Peace of Canada, P-E-A-C-E. It's kind of a pun. And um, it's a mosaic piece uh, that I made in Photoshop, and it's just an overview kind of like looking off at some mountains and a river and the little beaver's house. So not to, to distract from the, the message, I'm just going to ask you a, a quick question about Photoshop itself uh, for those who may be a little bit familiar. How many, um, I don't know if layers is the right word, because I, oh. I was never good at Photoshop, but I'm seeing a lot of moving parts yeah. in this picture. Yeah, oh my gosh, because I didn't rasterize anything. So for anyone who doesn't know Photoshop terms, that means that each triangle is its own layer. So I gave it the nickname of the project of literally a thousand layers. (laughs) Okay. How long did it take you? Uh, It took me about like two to three days. I hadn't been brainstorming for a while, but once I really got working on it, I spent like hours and hours. What was the inspiration for this piece? Um, The inspiration actually came from the Canada 150 symbol itself. I really liked the way that they use like, you know, like the harsh triangles and shapes like that. So that's where I got the idea to use the triangles. And after that, I just kind of went with it. Have you traveled across the country yourself? Um, yes, actually. So a lot of the inspiration came from um, Banff. I've been over that area. It's beautiful. Also, I went sailing on the St. Laurent just a few summers ago. And I'm actually originally from Ontario, so I had to draw some you know, beautiful forests that I'm familiar with from there. So you want to get into the, uh, well, what is the name of the program at Red River that you want to take? Uh, it's called Digital Media Design. So it's like a, almost like graphic design, but meets more different mediums like filmmaking, web design, and um, actually video game development. So the fact that this this piece of artwork that you have on display, is it weird to have it on display in such a prominent location at St. Vitale Center? Um, I find it less weird, more so just exciting. Like whenever I see it, I kind of fangirl myself, but I'm just really proud that I was able to do something this huge. And I'm just looking here. It says that there is a hashtag. We're supposed to uh, take a picture in front of the installation and post your photo uh, using, is it hashtag faces of SVC? Uh, yeah. So that if you do that, you have a chance to be entered for a competition so you can win prizes from the Sipatomo. So, so how, how, did you, how did you find out uh, and know to submit this uh, piece of work? Um, One of my art teachers um, at my homeschool, Claire Zabelvo, actually approached me, and then she was like, hey, I've got this really cool art contest. I think you'd be really good at it. So she's the one that introduced me to it. 
I've just I've looked up the hashtag uh, faces of SVC, and I've um, on Instagram. I'm, I'm currently on the Instagram, Shaylin, and I've mm-hmm. I've so- I found a picture of you uh, wearing yeah. kind of an old time, like sort of an old fashioned uh, dress with polka dots on it. What's <laughs> yeah. up with uh, What's up with that sensibility? Do you have an old soul? Uh, yeah, I've been told that since from my parents. I've been told that since I was two, I had the soul of a forty year old. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you're, yeah. you're wearing that with pride now, are you? Yeah. Well, good for you. What what is um what is this program called Propel that you're yeah, involved so, in at Nelson Mac? Yeah. So my homeschool is College of Belleville, but right now for this semester, I'm at Nelson Mac um, taking Propel. So Propel is a program for one semester. You come here and essentially you come up with some kind of project, a huge project that you want to work on. So it could be like creating a video game or one of us made a warming hut for the forks or any kind of big ambitious idea and you work on it throughout the semester. So it's called project-based learning. So you, you know, get your English credit through writing about it and emails and formal stuff like that that you would use almost like if you had a job. Oh my gosh. Brett and I are both looking at each other just <laughs> dumbfounded to imagine that a, a program like this exists in a really good way. This is outstanding. Yeah. Like This is real world stuff, right? Yeah. And back to the Photoshop thing for just a second, you know, like I'm, I'm 39. So Photoshop is not something that I've been using since I was a child. It was something I kind of learned how to sort of stumble my way through uh, creative communications at Red River College, but I was Mm -hmm. terrible at it. Is, is, is that something you've been using your whole life? I've been using it since probably around grade nine. I took a course on it at my homeschool and then I've just been building on it since then. And is it still the the flat? Is that still the program to use? I know sometimes these things change. I, I think of, for example, I used to use a program for layout called Quark Express, but I think Adobe has taken that with InDesign. So is Photoshop still the the gold standard? Yeah, it's still my personal favorite because um, one of the big problems with this design was that they needed to be so large, right, for printing purposes, because the backdrop is like almost ten feet tall. So I had to find something that could, you know make a file that big, and it seemed like Photoshop was the best for that. Well, come out to St. Vitale Center, Center Court. You can see Shaylin's uh, absolutely gorgeous creation, and then you can uh, be involved in this. And uh, the hashtag is Faces of SVC as part of a celebration of Canada's 150th birthday. It'll be at Center Court at uh, St. Vitale Center until May 31st, and you can be entered to win by sharing that photo of Shaylin's piece of work in your face. Uh, you can uh, win a trip a six-night stay and airfare for two to a select Canadian city. Sounds like a lot of fun. Shaylin, thanks for this, and thank you for sharing uh, the story behind your piece of art, and all the best as you make your way into this uh, incredible realm as a vocation. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. All right, Shaylin Tuami, she is a 17-year-old student at Nelson Mac, and she looks to be going into Red River College in their digital media design program to pursue a career in graphic design. Just want to quickly tell you a couple of traffic notes. Lajemodier and Furmore, the lights are back on in that busy intersection. As well, Pembina and Harrow, there's a tow truck in the far left lane northbound Pembina just before the turnoff to Harrow. So if you're on northbound Pembina just before the turnoff to Harrow, there's a tow truck in the left lane. And as much as I've been reading this one, 
I got caught in this one. St. Matthew's Avenue is closed between Golding Street and Dominion Street for the rest of May. <laughs> so uh, I can speak from experience that that one might sneak up on you. Does that frustrate you when you leave the station and you know, you <laughs> yep. know yep. this that this route has is screwed yep. up and then you just go that way. Go then. that way. You know, you drive on instinct a little bit. Once in a while, and that's just the way I come every once in a while when I make my Tim Horton stop on Ross and Salter. That's the way I come. I come down Sherbrooke Mm -hmm. or Maryland, I guess it is, and turn right on to St. Matthews and come to the station that way. And then I go very, very slowly through the school zone to make sure I don't get a ticket. Right, Shadow Davis? And uh, (laughs) I ran into that barricade uh, just on the, uh, I guess it was the east side of St. Matthew's at Dominion Street. So you'll want to keep that in mind as you're making your way through the West End this afternoon. 316, full traffic details and weather details up next. 320, hope you're having a great day. Thanks for spending some time with myself, Greg Mackling, and he is Brett McGarry. And it's prize time. Two tickets up for grabs. Winnipeg Wine Festival tasting event, RBC Convention Center, this Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m. And for the trivia this week, we've been finding movie clips that have to do with wine and need you to identify the film that clip is from. Here is today's clip. Who needs it? My dear girl, there are some things that just aren't done, such as drinking Dom Perignon 53 above a temperature of 38 degrees Fahrenheit. What film was that? 204-780-6868. Greg's nodding his head. Do you know the film, Greg? No, I have a feeling I know the film. I never say definitively when it comes to movies whether I know what it is or not, but I have a pretty good idea. Yeah, I have a good idea. I have a a good idea that this one's going to be uh, softball for our listeners, but that's okay. 204-780-6868 is the number to call. Should we be calling this segment Two Tickets to Paradise since it's... Two tickets to the wine festival. We know how people feel about wine these days. It might be, uh, you know, one of the hottest tickets in town right now. Last year I tried to go, but I waited too long to to buy tickets, and it was sold out. Yeah, so if you're even thinking about going uh, to any of the events, they a lot of them so sell out very quickly, and so this is a pretty hot ticket. We're giving you an opportunity to win this afternoon, and I think we have more tickets tomorrow and Friday as well, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, something that people do mistake from time to time, there's a, there's a street in St. Boniface, in the St. Boniface Industrial Park. It runs off of Archibald. Okay. And it's spelt P-L-I-N-G-U-E-T. Do you know the name of this street? I would think it's Plingay. Well, a lot of people call it Plinket. Okay. And forever in a day, there was a giant 4 by 8 sheet of reclaimed, I guess it would be plywood that had an address and it was spelt p-l-i-n-q-u-e-t oh okay not the official street sign but that piece of that piece of of wood was there with this address forever and i think everyone maybe seven eight out of ten winnipeggers thinks that that street is called plinkette I hear it called that all the time. The reason I bring this up, single file on Archibald, both ways from Nairn to Mission, and uh, traffic, if you're going uh, northbound, is backed up uh, all the way back south of Provence uh, to Plinguette. Yeah, I'll have to double check with Tristan Field-Jones if it's Plinguette. Plinguette is probably acceptable, but maybe it's Plinguet. His French is clearly... Better than mine. So uh, and yours out. is much better than mine, so there we go. It is coming up to time for sports with 
Oh, very quickly, we have a winner, and the winner is Steve Hennessy. He's going to switch up the Hennessy for some wine on Saturday <laughs> because he was able to correctly identify the film as the 1964 James Bond classic Goldfinger. That's as bad as listening to the Beatles without earmuffs. Sports up next. So, I guess you're glad you don't smoke anymore, Brett McGarry. <laughs> well, it, yeah, it's it's a reason. One one of many reasons why I'm glad I was finally able to let that demon, to exercise that demon. Sometimes the most difficult part, I'm just assuming here, of smoking is finding a place to actually smoke these days because there are so many limitations inside and out, and you can add MTS Center to that list of places where you cannot smoke anymore. Well, I guess you can. You can go out for a smoke, but don't expect to uh, get back into the facility if you decide to do so. MTS Center announcing today that as of September 1st, you will no longer be able to leave the building and re-enter during the same event. It's something that I know non-smokers took advantage of as well, they would go into uh, to uh, what is it called? It's not Eaton Place anymore, madam. I ever city old place. city place. <laughs> <laughs> we were watching those old videos of the opening of Portage Place today. Okay, my goodness, was that ever a, a wormhole on YouTube? Yes, uh, of course, it's called City Place. Uh, a lot of people would take advantage of the public washrooms in City Place. Maybe pop over to the Shark Club for some alternate entertainment in between periods. Maybe a beverage or two that will no longer be an option either. So it's not just the smokers that are being affected by this new policy. And True North does say that they will impact about 10% of ticket holders at events. As far as the smoking thing goes, uh, True North VP of Entertainment Kevin Donnelly has made the comparison to, hey, like if you take a flight, for example, once you go in the airport, you're essentially done. Like you're not smoking until you're at your destination. And out of that airport. Yeah, you've got your bag. I remember going to Houston for WrestleMania X7, and that may have been the most satisfying cigarette I'd ever had because it had been, I think it was the longest I'd had to go during a day right. without, because ha- I think, I i don't know, it was six or seven hours. From was the it time. the George Bush airport at that point in time? Uh, I can't remember what the airport was called. It you was didn't a- care. Well, it was a big air. I don't know. I just I don't remember what the airport was. I called. know you don't care because you just you get me out. I need a. I need a. Did you call it a dart? A dart. Yeah, that's right. I needed a dart. I needed a dart. Well, okay. Even if I didn't smoke, though, I wouldn't remember what the name of the airport was. But, oh, okay. But I'm a I, geek like that. I remember the having to wait for my bag, and it was the. It took like an hour, and I'm not exaggerating. It, we had to wait for our bags for an hour. And it was, oh no, it wasn't even my bag. It was my friend's bag. His He had to wait for his checked bag so we couldn't leave the terminal until he had his bag. So finally, when I was able to go outside, ah, I'm not, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like I'm advocating. I just remember how difficult it was. And I think what I'm getting at here is for those who are smoking and pay, you know, hard-earned money to go to an event at MTS Center, that's that's a tough one for me to, to sort of make a decision on. I, I get the safety thing. I really do. And it's in the name of safety, and if we're one of the last cities, last arenas to make this, to adopt a policy like that, then maybe it's just time to get with the times. But if it's affecting 10% of ticket holders that go to these events, that pay a lot of money to go to these, it's almost like... I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I like it. I'm, I'm kind of 50-50 on this one. Uh, the information that I have is Toronto will now be the last city in Canada. 
with a major event center like MTS that allows you to to do just that, to go out for a cigarette. But that 10% is a bigger number because I think they're just accounting for the people who might be going out for a cigarette. I outlined a couple of other things that people were doing on their pass-out privileges to leave and to come back, and, and that's going to congest the already congested even more the uh, common areas uh, in and around uh, the uh, MTS center, around the seating bowls, up in the two or the 100, 200 level, and up on the 300 level. So uh, I don't know. I wonder if they've taken that into account as well. They'll have, have that many people in the common areas, uh, the concourse, as many people call it, at MTS center. Uh, Tesla, by the way, this news just came out. They reported a $330 million loss in its first quarter, and the uh, shares are down $2 a share. Uh, They're up over $300, uh, $311.02. They're up 34% in the last 12 months, but this uh, loss uh, really taking analysts by surprise. They were expecting uh, maybe $0.55 per share, $2.04 a share, way beyond analysts' expectations. So uh, Tesla might be one of those stocks that you look at and go, gosh, I should have bought those when they were $20. I know it's one of the ones I beat myself up about. So I feel a little bit better, only marginally, when I read news like this today. Uh, one just one final thought on the, the smoking thing at MTS Center. I think one reaction a lot of people are going to have is, well, if they want to if they want to go to a hockey game, then they can just quit smoking. It's, it's just not that easy. But I suppose another counter could be to bring a pack of Nicorette or something. I don't know. I suppose uh, maybe this opens a door for a dark guy, Winnipeg version, to become ultra famous with an unlit cigarette <laughs> in his mouth during stressful times at games at MTS Centre. We can only hope that uh, at some point in the not-too-distant future, uh, folks will be forced to uh, walk away and leave their cigarettes uh, even longer, maybe in an overtime game during Stanley Cup playoffs, but uh, I digress. And I'll just quickly tell you as well, Greg, that in 1997, City Council in Houston voted unanimously to rename the airport in Houston, George Bush Intercontinental Airport. So yes, when I went to see WrestleMania X7 in the early 2000s, I think it was 2001, it was called that. Freaking <laughs> Texas. Like, not international. Not international. Intercontinental. It's always got to be bigger in Texas. They can't just do international. I'm, I'm surprised they didn't call it the George Bush Intergalactic Airport. Well, just to be different and because things are bigger in Texas after all. Well, I suppose in, in my particular case, my personal uh, experience, it worked out for me because at Intercontinental Airport for the Intercontinental Championship match between Winnipeg's very own Chris Jericho and the then WWE Commissioner William Regal. Uh, traffic and weather together coming up next. Brett McGarry, Greg Mackling, Richard Cloutier just sliding in. And is, is Julie Buckingham not coming in today? I guess not. Uh, She'll be here. Oh, you can't see her? <laughs> no, no, she's not there yet. Um, we're getting uh, several text messages on the re-entry policy, the newly updated and announced one for MTS Center today, Richard. Uh, one individual texting us saying, uh, I, for one, I'll probably be in the minority, will not be renewing my season tickets because of this. Uh, also questions about, is, is this a policy elsewhere? It I is. Know, I know in the brand new Rogers uh, Arena in Edmonton, in Vancouver, Ottawa, Montreal, no re-entry. I can't figure out if Calgary has one or not. This is driven by the NHL, according to Kevin Donnelly, who will join us at quarter to five. 
And it's all about security. And uh, when you're talking about major venues, and I guess the NFL was the one that really set the gold standard for this. The NHL has followed. And it's a basic to a re-entry policy. Once you're in, you're in. And unless there's some sort of family emergency, if you leave the building, you have left for the evening. So it affects approximately 1,500 people. And we all know people that smoke and that like to go and light up during intermissions. Interestingly enough, I know of some people that, uh, because they didn't like the beer prices at MTS Center, they'd go somewhere nearby <laughs> for a beer during intermission. That is typical Winnipeg. Don't you love that? Oh, it goes back to the old days of running across to Chi-Chi's or Fingers sure. from the old Winnipeg Arena to grab sure. a shot or well, a quick uh, pint of yeah, draft. I yeah, I it's mean, time that, to come quick kicking and screaming into the 1990s Richard, here, Mackley. that's an age-old tradition sure. in Winnipeg. Sure. Uh, And speaking of age-old traditions in Winnipeg, we love to get a deal. And I was out a little bit earlier with our Global News colleague, Loren McNabb, at the new Outlet Collection Mall. Nice shirt. We did a little shopping. I I bought this, actually, in Minneapolis. And I did a little comparison between the Outlet Malls in Minneapolis and this one here in Winnipeg. This one I bought specifically at uh, the Off-Fifth, at the Outlet Mall south of Minneapolis, uh, just uh, south of the, the BFM. Was that Albertville? Is that no, this, there's another one okay. just south All the way of to Iowa. Just, just <laughs> south of, uh, of the Mall of America. And I call it BFM. Uh, but uh, it's one of those. Uh, so just I got that. Thank you. Uh, it's one of those deals that I'm kind of disappointed with oh. the, the, the Saks off fifth here. And I'll tell you why with, with Loren uh, after the 430 news. Can you of see course. me now? Yeah, I can see you now. See, just because I was trying to help a lovely uh, lovely caller, I had to take a shot while I'm not in here. We'll give away uh, Burton Cummings tickets a little Fear bit later this afternoon as we continue our guess series. So we did guess who, guess where. Today is... Guess what? Guess what? That's what. Guess why? That's why. In, in in Greg's defense, though, I genuinely can't. The way that they've now configured the studio. <laughs> now you can't see added, me. <laughs> I cannot see your face. And that's not a that's knock true. against your height. That's just the way that they've. I can see your eyes now. It's like that character from Home Improvement. I think <laughs> I think we have people from Homeland Security coming to inspect what we've done here. Well, no, because I think Donald Trump might want to emulate this on the Mexican-American border. <laughs> well, here. We've, we've got lots of monitors in here now. Exactly. You know what? We should actually get uh, Julia Barstool for there. And she could see I would you. love that. I would. And and you guys could serve them up here before. Can we get a liquor license into the studio? I don't see why not. Do we need one? But maybe we don't. I think We're that's one of the best it. ideas you've ever had, Richard. <laughs> yeah. Let's lawyer up, find out where we stand or or sit in this case. Just a very quick thought, Richard. Uh, do Should retailers in Winnipeg be fearful of this outlet mall? No. I, I think in the first two weeks of anything opening, people will check it out. Uh, and I saw some bargains there today. I bought a new pair of shoes. Of course he did. That uh, I suspect that was marked up to begin with a little bit. So there are some deals out there. You're so suspicious of everything. What color are the shoelaces? Brown. Uh, Boring. Did you have a coupon? I did not. By the way, just want to let you know. What color are the shoelaces? That is a rookie, rookie, rookie mistake. You got to have the coupon book for the outlet mall. (laughs) Actually, oh boy! Actually, it is it's actually. A you know mistake. what? Uh, Loren and I each got twenty-five dollar uh, uh-huh. wristbands. However, we gave them away to others because we both have. And there's the global news policy of not not doing that. 
Just saying. You're, you're all too kind. Uh, by the way, two-vehicle <laughs> crash at Jarvis and McPhillips in the middle of the intersection. That's not going to cause any problems uh, at all. And we're crashing to the end here, so we'll just we'll let you guys go. Great to see you. Uh, till 7 o'clock, Richard and Julie, they'll get you home safe and informed. And by the way, she took a shot, but uh, she wasn't doing shots in there. Just, just so you know. Well, we take shots at her all the time, so she might as well take a shot of uh, some other sort of liquid that might help her get through the afternoon with you, Rich. Wow. Whatever it takes. I'm Brett McGarry. He's Greg <laughs> Mackling, Jeff Forte, and Master Control. The news with Richard and Julie is up next.